right, there they go. John chapter 4, great. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, we come uh, to your word and we ask that we could uh, have your word uh, be found to find uh, fertile soil of our hearts, that we would uh, allow this word to go deeply into our lives, that you would mix it with faith and that it bear forth fruit fruit like this uh, Samaritan woman had, uh, her faith in you, uh, her desire to pursue people and tell others about who you are. Uh, Lord, we pray that this uh, word that we receive would not find its way uh, onto stony ground. Uh, Lord, that the cares of this world uh, would choke it out and to kill it, that it would be of no profit to us. We pray that your word would find good success. So open our eyes now to see wonders from your word, that we could behold you and your glory, that we would grow thereby by chewing it and eating it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I hope that as Sue read that, that you saw uh, just how surprising of a passage this is. In fact, I would argue that John, the gospel writer here, uh, expects you to be surprised by this story. But maybe you would have to say, Josh, why am I surprised here? And in order to know that, you would have to know the context. Let me just remind you of where we are coming from. The context of John chapter 4 is the most famous verse probably in the Bible. It's the one that's in the end zones. You know, John 3.16, you know, if you're wondering why that's in the end zones, okay, it's, it's the most famous verse probably in the Bible, and that actually is what gives us our understanding for this passage. Let me just read you John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is the central verse of chapters 3 and 4. John 3.16 is like a linchpin. It connects chapter 3 and it connects it with chapter 4. And it does that with this one controversial word. Whosoever or whoever. Whoever really is a controversial word for us today. Have you noticed that we live in a divided age of identity politics? I mean, have you noticed? <laughs> it's pretty obvious, right? I mean, everything is politicized. Where you shop, how you spend your money, who you sleep with, even what you eat, how you act, how you speak. It shows whether you are in the group of the oppressors or if you are oppressed. You are either for the cause or you're against it. Everyone is in a group. That's just the nature of identity politics. And these groups coexist in a perpetual state of war. Have you noticed that there is so much finger pointing? We are writing people off. All it takes is one wrong tweet, one wrong comment, and the guillotine of social media commentary lops off your head. And the person is condemned. You're a white supremacist. You're a sexist. We are not used to the word whoever. We do not like the word whoever. But the Bible says whoever. Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Whoever means anyone. And John has structured his gospel so there can be no mistaking it. In chapter 3 and chapter 4, John introduces us to two different people that you would have expected 
to be exceptions to John 3.16. The first person in chapter 3 is one who is surely too good to need to do anything to avoid God's wrath. And the other person in chapter 4 that we just read about has surely gone too far off to do anything to get eternal life. But John includes them to persuade you that everyone must believe or they will perish, even him, Nicodemus. And anyone can believe and have eternal life, even her, the Samaritan woman. Whoever is without exception. Faith family, how big is your whoever this morning? Is it really whoever? Or is it whoever with some exceptions in a room this size? There is always somebody that feels that they have done something that has dropped them out of whoever. Maybe you're here this morning thinking that you are the exception to who Jesus had in mind when he offers you eternal life. There's great hope for you. Jesus offers whoever, without exception, a relationship like no other. Here's our sermon. Jesus offers a relationship like no other to whoever with no exceptions. Jesus offers you this morning a relationship like no other to whoever with no exceptions. Let's see how Jesus surprises his disciples with his boundary-bursting love. First, a surprising contrast. In John 3, let's kind of just remind ourselves of the huge contrast that's going on here. In John 3, we had an urban setting of a very crowded temple. In chapter 4 this morning, we are in the rural countryside that is desert-like. In John 3, we are in the capital of the promised land, Jerusalem. In chapter 4, we are in the middle of the bad country, Samaria. In chapter 3, we have a well-known man, Nicodemus. In chapter 4, we have an unknown woman. By the way, that is enough for that culture to say Jesus should not bother with her. Look over at chapter 4, verse 27. If you're new to using a Bible, you want to keep that open. It's going to help you. Chapter 4, large number. Small number is 27. That's the verses. Look and see how the disciples show us what the cultural norm is. In 27, just then, his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? To her or to him, why are you talking with her? Well, the contrast continues. He is Jewish. She is a Samaritan. He is a ruler in the capital city. She is a local of a tiny village like Loudoun. He's a religious insider who comes to Jesus at night. She is a social outcast that comes to Jesus at midday, high noon, when the sun is beating down, the worst time for a chat. Nicodemus sees Jesus as rabbi in John 3, 2. 
But all the Samaritan woman sees is a tired, sweaty, foot-sore Jewish traveler. And so she addresses him as sir. Nicodemus addresses him as teacher come from God. But she sees Jesus as little more than an ordinary man and calls him sir in chapter 4, verse 11. Did you know the Samaritan woman had the wrong religion? Listen to how Jesus describes all of Samaria. They were people with religious ignorance. It's not polite today. This is what Jesus would say to them in John 4, 22. Look at John 4, 22, verse, part A. You worship what you do not know. She came with the wrong religion. Nicodemus, on the other hand, came with the right religion. Jesus continues in 22, saying about the Jews, we worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. Do you see the contrast? With Nicodemus, Jesus is with the best possible. He's a Jewish ruler, a Pharisee, he's moral, and he has male privilege. The unknown Samaritan is a female bumpkin, socially outcast and religiously ignorant. And yet, and yet, Jesus will not take Nicodemus on any terms unless he has a fresh start. Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And this religious insider who comes to Jesus at night, well, he leaves in darkness. John's readers are horrified. If the religious, morally interested, right, polite Nicodemus cannot enter the kingdom of God, then who can? It would be like denying President Biden access back into our country through immigration. Right? I mean, if you won't accept President Biden's passport, then the rest of us are doomed. For the day that President Biden is not allowed back into our country, surely the rest of us won't be. Likewise, if Nicodemus can't get in to heaven, we have a problem. I mean, Jesus, how tiny is the group that believes? For if Nicodemus doesn't believe, that group must be very small. Jesus, how big is the group that perishes? For if Nicodemus is in that group, then the whole world is in some big trouble. John's readers wouldn't have expected Nicodemus to leave at night unsaved. And by the time they get to chapter 4, they certainly wouldn't have expected much more of the Samaritan woman, for she starts way, way, way back. She is on the outside of every inner ring. She was a gender outsider, a racial outsider, and she was a religious outsider. And yet, and yet all she does is keep stepping forward. She stays in the conversation, she keeps asking questions, and all Jesus does is keep shining more and more light on her. And she comes to the light, she loves the light, and then she brings the light of the world to the people that she used to avoid. She's a perfect example of 
whoever. Whoever means anyone. Even her. Even you. Friends, what great hope we have that anyone can move from the darkness of religion to the light of a relationship with Jesus Christ. A relationship like no other offered to whoever with no exceptions. Let's see how that movement can happen in your life from religion to a relationship. Jesus is going to figure out here in the second part of our sermon, he has to reveal who he is in order to restore her to a relationship with God. But how does he do that? We're going to look at that now as we continue. But for a second, just put yourself in her shoes. You've been... Well, I was going to say blessed, but that sounds self-serving. What a privilege you have to have John 1 through 3. She didn't have that. She didn't get the prologue that this is Jesus, the light of the world, coming to be the Savior of the world. She does not get John the Baptist pointing out, behold the Lamb of God. She does not get the miracle of turning water into wine. She has no idea that Jerusalem is in an uproar all because of him. She knows none of that. She sees little more than a weary, sweaty, foot-sore Jewish traveler. So how is he going to communicate with her who he is and what he has to offer? All she expects to be is ignored. Look at verse 9. Well, we'll look at verses 7 through 9 here. Look at the opening lines of this surprising conversation. 7 through 9, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? John inserts it here. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This looks like a current cultural field of landmines, right? I mean, it sounds like the kind of thing that a man would say to a woman to assort power or control over her. It comes off patriarchal. It comes off male chauvinistic. But she's not offended at all, right? John lets us know what the cultural code was back then. The social cues you should have picked up on? Silence. She didn't expect to be talked to, for the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans. So Jesus is actually acting against cultural expectations. The fact that he speaks to her, you should not hear it as offensive. Give me a drink, woman. That's not how you should hear it. You should go, wow, he's talking to her? That's promising. Okay, so she replies in surprise, how is it that you are talking to me? Loosely translated, to what do I owe this pleasure? It's never happened before. A Jewish man talking to me? Well, Jesus drops in casually what we already know, that she's talking to God and that he can offer her living water. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now she looks at him. She sizes him up. Look at verses 11 and 12. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the will and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. 
At this moment, this is where you would be proud to have her as your daughter, right? When a man comes to a woman, a young lady, men, and says that he has something to offer your daughter, you love it when your daughter stands her ground, digs in her heels and say, let's not pretend that you have anything to offer me. I'm the one with the bucket. Last time I checked. All you got is a headache from being out in the sun too long. Next. Amen? Well, the girls in here are like, yeah, I want to say that. Th that's what she's asking. Are, are, are you going to do something better? Can you improve on Jacob's well? Where's your bucket? You're going to offer me a drink? Okay. The conversation could be over. She's a lot like Nicodemus at this point. Nicodemus didn't get what Jesus had to offer when he said, you must be born again. All Nicodemus could think about was, I got to go where again? It was all about the physical. And so here, the Samaritan woman is only thinking in physical categories. I don't see how it's going to work that I'm going to get living water when you don't even have a bucket. Okay? But Jesus perseveres. Look at verses 13 through 15. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What's she saying? He's saying, hey, listen, you're misunderstanding me. You have no idea what I'm offering. Don't misunderstand, please. I'm not talking about this water. Of course, this water we have to go back to every single day. But I have something to offer you that'll make you live, that has life, and it's refreshing, and it will bring hope to your desert-like existence. And Jesus is making that offer to a Samaritan woman, a surprise, not the sort of person you would expect Jesus to be interested in. But there's even a more shocking connotation here. It's absolutely critical if you're going to understand what Jesus is really offering here. G John has been preparing his readers all along to see Jesus as a bridegroom. Remember with me, okay? He wants you to know that Jesus is a bridegroom and that he's offering you a relationship like no other. No other in that it is as intimate as a marriage. And in John 2, we have Jesus at a wedding. And Jesus takes on the role of a bridegroom providing wine, saving the day. And then in John chapter 3, a couple weeks ago, John the Baptist calls himself the best man. And Jesus is the bridegroom. Well, now we're in chapter 4, and if you knew your Old Testament better, you would expect this story to end in a marriage, a relationship like no other. For all of Israel's ancient literature has boy meet girl at a well. Isaac, Jacob, Moses, all marry women they meet at a well. For our modern day listeners, the well is the Old Testament dating app. <laughs> and Jesus showing up at Jacob's well means that app is loaded. 
And here in chapter 4, Jesus is at Jacob's well, and guess what? He uses the exact same language the servant uses to arrange the marriage of Isaac and Rebekah. Please, give me a drink. That should tip you off as a reader to reveal to you that God has come to look for a bride. But here it is not beautiful Rebecca or dream girl Rachel. No, here, the whosoever is the most unsuitable, unacceptable, least likely disciple to prove to you that there are no exceptions with God. Whoever can enter into a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, a relationship that is like no other. And Jesus rescues the conversation. Look at chapter 4, verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. She's on the hook. She's on the hook. Now, you judge whether she really gets it here or not. I'm undecided. Great biblical scholars don't agree, smarter than me, on whether she really gets it. But this I do know. I'm not sure all of what that means, but I do know this, that Jesus has rekindled in her something. He has tapped into her heart aspiration for something beyond what has currently left her empty and dry. And he's going to make sure that whatever she is saying here, that she really gets it. So my non-Christian friend, it doesn't necessarily matter where you start. He's going to bring you all the way. I don't know. I don't know if she gets it. But he's going to make sure that she gets it. He's offering her a relationship like no other. And so he says, go and bring all of your other existing relationships. Look at it, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. That is not a change of subject. Jesus is revealing her need for what he has to offer. This is what Jesus would ask of you. Bring all your other relationships that are not meeting your ultimate heart longing. To put it in the words that we heard from our communion table in Jeremiah, right? The words we heard from Jeremiah that all of us have this bucket that is broken and we plunge it down into all these wells that only have pond water in them. And what Jesus is saying here is, come bring your crack pots, the ones with holes in it. The ones that you have that pond water in, yeah, bring those here. You want to exchange that for God's living water where God is the source of your ultimate satisfaction for life and for refreshment? To have a relationship with God like no other that is offered to whoever with no exceptions, he demands your allegiance. You have to deal with all your other relationships if you're going to have a relationship with this God that is like no other. You get that? If you're going to have a relationship with God that's like no other, he says bring all your other relationships first. Because i got to be your primary allegiance. The woman replies in verse 17, I have no husband. 
But Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. You just put yourself in her shoes for a second again. Can you imagine, maybe just for a second, she actually thought she stumbled upon a stranger and she was enjoying a conversation with somebody who she thought didn't know anything about her. We live in a small town, don't we? And I'm sure you can relate that it is hard to hide in a small town. But Jesus is God, and God knows people inside and out, the good and the bad, and yet he still comes to offer you a relationship like no other, with no exceptions. But he does demand her allegiance. For when God knocks on the door of your heart, he requires you to open it. Not only to open up your heart to his love, but actually to open up your heart to his light. His searching gaze to root out whatever else is in there competing for allegiance with him. There is no way that she can be in a relationship with God until she deals with all of her other competing relationships. Anyone that's come to the light of God knows something of that exposure. Have you felt that? When God shines some light in your heart, it gets personal, doesn't it? Because somewhere you know you're drinking deeply. Somewhere you're looking for satisfaction. Somewhere you're looking for significance. Somewhere you're looking for security. Faith family, down what well have you dropped the bucket of your soul? From what well have you dropped the bucket of your soul down? And his light's going to expose you. And though she is the most exposed she has ever been, do you know that she has never been more safe? Because the love of God is also the same God who loves you so much to shine his light on you to root out all other false counterfeit loves. If you've been listening to the voice of God through his word this morning, do not retreat or avoid the surgeon's knife. If God shines his light on you, don't shrink back. Ask him to search you. He already knows what's there to reveal to you what's wrong. My friend, you can confess your sins. His mercy is more we sang about. Open your life to the light of God. It's the only way you will experience his love. I'm going to encourage you, don't wait for a better moment. Don't wait for a better sermon. It is not better sermons. It is not better moments. If God is knocking on the door of your heart, say, shine your light. She doesn't wait. She's on the hook. She's actually beginning to believe that Jesus is offering her a relationship like no other. And perhaps she's not an exception. So in verse 20, she basically is going to ask, how is this going to work? Look at verse 20. Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where we ought to worship. Now again, some of my friends that are commentators that I consult think that she's trying to get this off track. 
I do not think she's kicking up dust here, personally. I don't think she's trying to distract him with a theological conundrum. I think she's really asking this. How is it that I, a Samaritan woman, are going to be able to come into a relationship with a Jewish Messiah? I'm a Samaritan. You're a Jew. How is this going to work? I mean, which place of worship do we go to? Your place or mine? The temple or the mountains? How do I get this done? So my friends, if you have fallen asleep, I'm asking you for a second just to listen up. This is the most important part. If you're beginning to think that Jesus actually might be offering you a relationship with God like no other, with no exceptions, do not do what most people do. Do not place your hope in a place where religion will get it done. It is not about going to a certain place. There is no such thing as a sacred place. This is not a sanctuary. We say every week in our emails, prepare for the weekly gathered. Worship may happen here. It may not. I wish I could make it every week that worship happens here. This is not a worship center. It's not a worship service. It is our weekly gathering. We hope to worship, but you can go through the motions and have your heart far from him. And the reason why it's not about a place is because place has been replaced by person. It's about Jesus Christ. Look at 21 through 24. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. You want a reuniting with God? You want a relationship with God like no other? All the smells and the bells and the rituals and the rites in religious places won't take you to God. To which she says, I know. And when the real person shows up, the Messiah, he will make it plain. Look at verse 25, John 4, 25. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. I, I can't figure it out until then. And Jesus reveals who he is to the Samaritan woman. Verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. The first person Jesus reveals himself to is a woman from Samaria. To prove to you that this Jesus is that God who can offer you a relationship like no other to whoever with no exceptions, no matter who you are. You know, religion, morality, culture, it will tell you, we know who meets God. It's the ones that go to the cells, the monasteries and pray, those that deny themselves and sacrifice. It's the good people. But this woman wasn't praying, she wasn't seeking, and she's saved. Are you surprised? 
By faith family, you should be surprised at every time you come to church. Who knows what could happen? You are allowing the Spirit to work through you somehow. I have never been so busy as a pastor. I have had six evangelistic conversations in the past two weeks because of all the seeds you are sowing, and then people saying, can I talk with the pastor? I have shared the gospel. My church office has been so busy, clarifying, persuading, pleading, lifting up Jesus, all because of the Spirit's work that he's doing in and through you. I don't know what the Spirit's doing, but I will say this. If you have a friend, if you have a neighbor, if you have a colleague, now is the time. Take a risk. You might be rejected, but the Spirit is drawing whoever to himself if they come through Jesus Christ. In culture, in religion, in morality, there's no surprises. But in Christianity, you can be surprised every single week. Just look in the mirror and be like, how did I get saved? Because I'm sure you were somebody had written off about a year before you got saved too. It doesn't matter your culture. It doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter your record. It doesn't matter your race. It doesn't matter your gender. For this living water is given on the basis of grace. And grace is always surprising. My non-Christian friend, this grace knows no limit. He doesn't have to ration out his grace. He doesn't have to worry that if he gives Josh Owens this grace to cover all of his sins, there might be a shortage in the supply chain that you won't get any, or he's going to inflate the price. I mean, hypothetically. You don't know anything about that, do you? <laughs> no. His grace you cannot exhaust. There is no limit. There is no boundary. My non-Christian friend, if you only knew, you'd ask. Do you know what can be given? Life. Eternal life that satisfies. Do you know the one who is giving it? Jesus Christ is offering you a relationship like no other without any exception. Faith family, when you come to church and our weekly gatherings, here's your application. Leave all your stinking distinctions at the door. Because in this building, it doesn't matter your class, your race, your moral performance, all of that can just stay in the car. Leave it at the door. There's no distinctions here. It's level at the cross. And faith family, that should excite you. You should buckle up and get ready for an adventure. Because Jesus' witness to the world, the beginning of his evangelistic mission of the church, started with this Samaritan woman to where we turn to next week. He says, the fields are white for harvest. He says that now the sower and the reaper rejoice together. I'm from Northern Virginia, D.C., concrete jungle. You guys, beautiful Loudoun, agricultural. Farmers, hardworking gardeners. Do you ever know when a reaper and a sower rejoices together? 
No. Those people are separated by months. One sows, months go by, and you reap. And Jesus says, oh, you have a saying, four months until the harvest. But I tell you, the sower and the reaper rejoice together because the seasons are conflated because I am here. And now you could go out this week and sow, and Josh Owens can be in his office and reap, and we can rejoice together now because he has come. You don't have to wait. You say, oh, I'm going to wait for a better time to tell my neighbor. Like, you know, when they have a baby. Oh, yeah, because sleeplessness helps spiritual productivity. <laughs> I'm going to wait until they go through a hard time. Oh, yeah, because suffering has not hardened people and turned them from Christ. I'm going to wait till I build this bridge and set it up and I get this platform. Really? The Samaritan woman next week is going to show you up. So don't come to church next week if you're thinking you're going to coast through. Because she shows you on day one what a disciple of Christ does. Oh, I need more training. I want evangelistic training. I want apologetic. Really? The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. Hey, family, are you ready for an adventure? Tonight? Who is Jesus? Why bother? Great time to invite somebody. Bring them with you. Next week, even better. Two of the conversations I had over the past two weeks, why did Jesus have to die? In my office the past two weeks, I've had the same question twice. It means it's on people's minds. Why did Jesus have to die? That's next week. So all of you got this week stapled to your bulletin as an eyesore for you to say, who could I take a risk with? And invite. Maybe the church would be helpful for you to come to that tonight. It's only an hour. If you're considering it, let me just break it down for you in 30 seconds. We do 20 minutes of looking at God's word to explain why bother with Jesus. We have a 10-minute break with food, dessert. <laughs> you write questions down anonymously. Anonymously. They get passed into somebody that's not me. They ask me the questions so that I can't take all the hard ones and ignore them. <laughs> or be like, hmm, save that one for later. Didn't see that one. No, it's just somebody else asked me the questions so that there's honesty to it. And we're done by seven. One hour. Why bother with Jesus? If your boss sent you an email, you'd bother. If your dad called you, you'd bother. Maybe you've been waiting to get around to considering Jesus. Why bother? The God of the universe is offering you a relationship like no other, with no exceptions. I'd bother. Let's stand and sing.